greetings to all this is abhivardhan from the bharat pacific and uh, with aditya we are here another for we are here for another interesting interview with mohammad soliman from the middle east institute uh, i'd like to introduce our guest because this is one of the very special interviews which we are having and i guess uh, this would comprise a lot of interesting horizons which are happening in west asia and i guess the discussion would be really enriching for all the viewers because um we would like to come up with more in nuanced and i would say even you know emerging perspectives on west asia and even those on the critical technologies front so let me introduce our speaker and then we can go ahead with the session uh, mohammad soliman is the director of strategic technology and cybersecurity program at the middle east institute uh, his work focuses on the intersection of technology geopolitics and business in middle east and north africa uh, his uh, one work which fascinated me a lot was about this concept of an indo abrahamic accord when the i2 u2 grouping was actually kind of introduced by uh, the relevant leaders and me- me- government members from israel india uae and the united states and uh, his all his work on indo abrahamic relations in the sense that indo west asian countries relations is something which fascinated me a lot so uh, i was thinking that maybe an interactive discussion on this could be you know really insightful for all of us so um, welcome and it's a pleasure to have you thank you so much we again i really appreciate uh, being on the podcast with you really uh, for your work and uh, the great discussions we had with previous speakers so i'm very very looking forward to this thank you so much so let's start with some basic questions um when we uh, talk about the india west asia relationships we are talking about a bunch of countries which are very unique in their own conditions right i mean we are way past the cold war dilemma so we are considering countries like israel palestine turkey saudi arabia uae qatar right so when we look at these countries um a lot of interesting developments have happened in the past two years which have kind of shaped the dynamic uh with, you know when it comes to the india relationship so my question is that when we look at the dynamic relationship how do you see uh, uh you know the aftermath of whatsoever was achieved through the abraham accords because i think the abraham accords kind of you know ushered a new anchor of uh, cooperation among certain west asian countries and india was kind of very much elated about it so how do you see that i think we can take that as a cornerstone to begin with now this next one question i can start by saying that the the abrahamic accords the peace agreements that uh, the trump administration signed or sponsored between israel uae uh, bahrain uh, morocco you can also include sudan to this a bit uh, uh, i would say it formalized an existing relationship between israel and these uh, mentioned countries it much more could define an existing relationship than coming up with something new however uh, having a formalized relationship having uh, uh, ambassadors residing in their respective capitals having uh, some sort of uh, a platform for bilateral relationship that's public uh, provides uh, uh, opportunities opportunities to coordinate uh, uh, diplomatic economic and political fronts and i would say that the relationship between the uae and israel right now Uh, uh, uh is at the highest point of cooperation and something that we didn't really see in the in, in West Asia in a long time. Uh to your second part of the question about India, uh, uh uh 
there was a lot of questions, there are a lot of concerns about the Abrahamic Accords and if they will endure after the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Uh, people were not really sure, even here in D.C., people were not really sure uh, if this would be, uh, 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 if there would be some sort of continuity between the Trump team and the Biden team on the uh, Abrahamic Accords. And then the Biden team embraced it. The Biden team uh, is trying to actually expand the Abrahamic Accords, is actually standing behind the Abrahamic Accords and trying to create a mechanism uh, for uh, uh, for the Accords through the Najaf Forum, which is some sort of a security architecture or a security centric grouping that discusses regional security and strategic issues. So I think the, the the fact that India was at the beginning trying to navigate that, I think that makes a lot of sense. India is uh, uh, is a major power uh, in its own. So trying to understand and assess the evolving landscape, I think that that, that made a lot of sense at the time. But right now, uh, with the Abrahamic Accord being some sort of a framework, India is engaging. Uh, uh, India is engaging in a much more, uh, uh, in a mini-lateral format, meaning you have uh, uh, the I2U2, and then you have the France, UE, and India framework. And why is that? Part of it is this is the era of mini-lateral uh, uh, frameworks. Uh, the age of multilateral is, is, is a bit shaky. So right now, countries are looking for like-minded nations to cooperate with, trying to find a common ground on strategic, political, economic issues. And this is what we're seeing. And Delhi is taking a, a leading position on that. So following it up on that, where does Saudi Arabia fit in in the vision of Indo-Abrahamic Accords? I mean, it is not part of the accord per se, officially. But I, I do see like Saudi Arabia being key to the whole vision of this grouping in the region in the sense that Saudi Arabia is a good partner. In fact, perhaps the most reliable partner of UAE. It is also kind of easing its relationship with Israel. Now, Saudi has also doubled down on relationship with India in the last decade. And it is kind of hedging its relationships in terms of its dependency on China and the US for the long term. Right? uh improving its relationship with india so where do you see saudi fitting in this accord in this equation uh, look saudi arabia is uh is on the rise uh, uh economically politically strategically it's an indispensable power in the arabian gulf and beyond uh, uh first of all remember this is the biggest uh, nation in the gulf uh, it's about 30 million people so they have considerable demographics in terms of wealth, uh, they're extremely wealthy, but not only just wealth, it's not only about money. They are localizing industry, uh, they're increasing their trade with the globe, they are uh, reinvesting, doubling down on their infrastructure uh, uh, from maritime to uh, uh, to air, uh, air transportation. They are going through uh, generational change. And everyone is looking to Saudi Arabia as uh, uh, up and coming global power, not only limited to West Asia. By the virtue of all the things that we that we mentioned, uh, uh, it fits perfectly with the framework uh, because Saudi rise means that uh, policymakers in Riyadh will be looking into their own positioning differently than the last 70, 80 years in terms of uh, uh, multilaterals, minilaterals, bilateral relationships. Uh, uh, however, it's going to take time, right? Uh, uh, when it comes to relationships between nations that uh, were uh, consumed or constrained by historical narratives, it takes time to move away from that. And that's fine. And I think we should leave or give Saudi Arabia some time to figure out 
uh, uh, when and how and what uh, they're going to do. Uh, uh, in terms of the Saudi-India relationship, I think it's a phenomenal. Uh, uh, again, Saudi uh, India, third and fourth uh, trade partners is the UE around $72 billion, and then Saudi Arabia around $45 billion. And that number I expect might double in the next uh, uh, next 10 years at least. Uh, uh, again, speaking about Indian expats in the Gulf, uh, around 3.5 million uh, Indians in the UE, I think around three or four million Indians in, 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 in Saudi Arabia. So in terms of US, I'm sorry, in terms of Saudi-India relationship, actually very optimistic about it. I think uh, uh, our friends in Riyadh are very optimistic about it. They look into India as, as a partner, as a partner of choice, uh, 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 and they want to have interest-based relationship. And same thing applies to New Delhi too. They, they understand the potential of Saudi Arabia. They understand the value of Saudi Arabia. However, the timeline, I think it's going to be that question. I think it's not going to take, it's not going to be a faster, a fa as fast as the UE uh, 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 in terms of normalizing or building relationship with other with other nations. Okay, that's very intriguing. So let's uh, then get to the Indo-Pacific. And uh, my uh, question would be that uh, you're very well, you know, uh, explained the case of Saudi Arabia when it comes to their relationship with India. And uh, there's a country that uh, interests me, which is Egypt. Uh, and why does it interest me is because countries like Egypt, countries like Israel, countries like Saudi, uh, countries like, you know, even Bahrain, Lebanon. Uh, we've at least seen one thing that when this Indo-Pacific concept has started emerging, at least uh, certain countries in Europe, the United States and Canada, even our countries in the Far East have expressed certain understandings of what is the Indo-Pacific, what they do, wish to do. And uh, uh, so you may understand that I'm trying to bring you to ITU too. But uh, when we look at West Asia, uh, how countries like Egypt, how countries like Saudi Arabia, how do they, uh, you know, take the pivot of the Indo-Pacific? How do they understand it from a political overview? Um so it's a very important question, a very tricky question. Listen, a lot of countries, a lot of regional capitals understand that America doesn't have the same bandwidth, strategic bandwidth, meaning uh, America historically, uh, uh, its own rise is based on um, uh, Washington's ability to maintain multi-theater dominance. The America can fight two wars in two different strategic uh, theaters and when. And that's a reflection of the legacy of the Second World War. So you had America winning the war against Imperial Japan uh, uh, on the Pacific theater and at the same time during the European uh, 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 offense against Nazi Germany and winning in the two theaters. So, and this is basically the major, one of the major reasons for, for winning the war. Um, and that basically, that doctrine dictated the US foreign policy, dictated also perception of other countries about the United States abilities and capabilities. That's changing, not because America is getting weaker. I don't think America is getting weaker at all. Uh, uh, in terms of military capacity. However, there's rise of the rest. There's other countries that are much more capable uh, than before on the rise strategically, economically, and politically. They want to take the lead on their own regional uh, spaces. So the pivot from the Middle East to the Indo-Pacific makes a lot of sense for Washington. You need to take away your assets, your strategic assets, reduce your military footprint in the Gulf and the Middle East broadly, and then pivot 
uh, these strategic platforms to Taiwan, where America is trying to defend its positioning uh, uh, in the Indo-Pacific and Asia um, uh, uh, more generally. Uh, so in the Middle East, regional powers are thinking about what's a post-US uh, uh, Middle East should look like. Uh, remember, in the Middle East, there is no NATO, there is no Quad, there is no AUKUS. There was not, right? So they started to build new minilaterals that could fill some of the security gaps that will that will result from the U.S. Uh, reduced footprint. So I think the first one, I think the first minilateral that started and people always underappreciated is the East Med Gas Forum, uh, which is a, a, a Cairo-based forum that includes uh, France, Egypt, uh, Israel, Cyprus, Greece, and that basically is a, a, a gas architecture that's trying to make sure that uh, 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 there is some sort of a security uh, uh, stability in this hotspot, especially with the Turkish-Greek competition. So that was the first minilateral in that broad region. And I think East Med definitely should be seen as part of West Asia. And then the second minilateral that we had is definitely the Abraham Accord, uh, and then the Najaf Forum. So the Najaf Forum is uh, is Israel-based uh, 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 security forum that includes uh, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, the US, and Egypt, a country that normalized with Israel like uh, uh, in 1970s. Um, and th this sort of grouping is trying to also tackle or at least discuss regional security uh, in general. And then the third one, in my own idea, in my own perception, is always the ITU2. Even though people are trying to uh, make the ITU2 more about economics, I don't think it's just about economics. I think it's economics, but also strategic alignment and thinking uh, uh, collectively about security issues. So these are the three vehicles that started to emerge uh, uh, because of the reality that the United States is much more focused on the Indo-Pacific and at the same time, uh, uh, also distracted by the war in Ukraine. Remember, I mean, America is the biggest backer of Ukraine. The reason why Ukraine is doing what it's doing right now, of course, the Ukrainian people. However, American support was very fundamental, very crucial uh, uh, in the war. So I think these three minilaterals in, the, in West Asia right now are trying to uh, uh, act uh, as a way of... Uh, 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 to fill the gap, to fill the gap that's being being filled uh, right now uh, by regional powers. Just to follow up on that, like while this is a vision of convergence where people can converge, countries can converge on a certain vision in the region. But when it comes to main contentions, especially like India and the rest in the Gulf, especially Iran and Pakistan, now how would the main Gulf countries that are traditional rivals of Iran would pursue the continued India's close relationship with Iran. Like historically, it has been close with all the Muslim countries in the region. And it intends to continue to do so, basically. It wants to have a good relationship with all the regions. So how would the uh, main rivals of Iran would pursue it? And how does India take uh, Gulf nations continued assistance to Pakistan. Like, I know many of these countries don't want to patronize Pakistan as they used to earlier, but still there is some kind of a uh, assistance keeps on going. Like we have recently seen the report saying that Saudi and UAE intends to bail out Pakistan from imminent uh, uh, debt crisis that 
because Pakistan is going through a huge economic crisis. So how do you see these two major contentions working out? Because I, I do see in the I2U2 equation, India being the main puzzle there because rest of the three countries are mostly from the traditional uh, US alliance axis. It's the India that brings the new dimension to the table. So how do you see these contentions working? Yeah, it's a very interesting point and very, uh, I really appreciate you for asking this question. Uh, I think in this uh, moment of uh, multipolar order, uh, uh, there's no grand bargain between nations, meaning you have to assess bilateral relationships based on their own merits. I mean, and this is what India is doing. I mean, literally that country that's leading that track uh, when it comes to pursuing multiple relationships with multiple rivals and saying, I only do relationships based on my own interest is India and other countries are doing the same. And that's fine. India, we, people, countries are okay with India pursuing its policy. At the same time, India should be comfortable with other countries pursuing their own policy. What matters is interest-based. And that interest-based is, I mean, it's trade, it's economics, it's people-to-people -people ties, it's technology, it's energy. I mean, if you share 70 or 80% of your foreign policy objectives, do you actually want to hurt that bilateral relationship and hold it hostage because X country has good relationship with X rival of, of India? I think this is not the way uh, 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 countries in the Gulf are thinking about it. And certainly not really policymakers in Delhi, right? I mean, the situation in Ukraine is very clear. It's like India and the Gulf and Israel are pursuing the same policy regardless of their own relationship with the United States. Uh, you have Israel, you have uh, the Gulf, you have India. They understand, they acknowledge the situation in Ukraine. They understand there is a, 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 there's a party that did something wrong, for sure. However, they disagree on what's the response uh, coming from the Western world, right? I mean, so I think this is the new norm and people should be comfortable with that. But you cannot, in my advice, and this is my own policy recommendation, we cannot hold bilateral relationships uh, 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 hostage to historical narratives and the fact that uh, countries have good relationship with ex third party that might disagree with a country. I mean, I think that would make things much more complicated and will uh, halt many of the improvements, many of the developments, many of the uh, uh, cooperation initiatives that are already taking place. Right. So, um let's get to uh, europe and the ukraine situation a bit and let's understand uh, certain aspects of i would say you know because there are uh, instances wherein uh, so i would like to convert this question into two points so the first aspect which i would like to ask is that after the ukraine conflict i think it will be in, in like the, the timeline would be like of an year in a few months i guess maybe by march so we see a thing that uh, Middle Eastern countries, like you really rightly said, uh, Israel, the Saudis, and others, they have taken a very, uh, very, I would say, nuanced approach to the situation. Um, and uh, the way uh, the political hedging has been done by them and India, individually as countries, is a remarkable phenomena. Because um, the Ukraine situation kind of also shows... Uh, because, for example, uh, we had an, an, the energy situation in Europe for some time was not good. And uh, Europe was considering to find alternative energy sources due to the situation with Russia and other things. So when it comes to energy economics and, you know, the way um, Europe has been trying to interact with West Asian countries, 
do you see how west asian countries such as israel egypt and others have tried to uh, generate some space from for their when it comes for themselves when it comes to their i would say trade relationship energy economics even i would say their political clarity because like you mentioned uh, there was a change of government in israel just some time back after elections and i'll not mention much about it but i'll just say that uh, israel's pol- position on russia creatively changed a lot because i think the last dispensation before netanyahu kind of uh, was a bit rhetorical on russia but that actually has changed uh, you know which is which is natural to happen with a country like israel so what do you think about when it comes to the europe paradigm it's very tough situation it's very complicated uh, it's messy and people here in washington acknowledge that uh, they acknowledge it's a very tricky situation for a lot of reasons uh, again uh, even the fact that russia is not doing well uh, uh, in the ukrainian theater it doesn't it doesn't mean that russia is done as a global player that has interest and influence in many strategic theaters that are important to the countries that you have mentioned from uh, from uh, the east med the mediterranean to uh, middle east west asia levant gulf i mean they are a, a, a major player in africa they have good relationship with many Latin American countries with many uh, uh, Asian countries, I mean, including including India, based on energy, military ties, tech, technology ties. So it's very hard to think about uh, 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 a complete isolation uh, for Russia. The West is trying, succeeded to some extent on uh, the tech side, on the financial side, uh, but definitely will struggle with, uh, with some of or many of the countries who have very strong interest that are aligned with Russia. That's very difficult to uh, 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 to end. Uh, there's no incentive for, uh, for example, there's, there's zero interest for Israel to end security cooperation, or at least security dialogue with Russia, given the fact that Russia is a major player in Syria, which is the northern borders of Israel. Doesn't work. Uh, or other countries in the Mediterranean uh, basin who uh, have to interact with Russia because of the Black Sea and because of the Russian uh, naval base in Syria. Uh, the same thing applies to other strategic theaters. Uh, so I think here in DC, there is adjusted expectation. I think they are uh, uh, they understand that asking uh, non-European actors to be uh, as tough as European actors in the United States on Russia might be uh, a maximalist position. Uh, and I think the last G20 was a bit humbling experience for Washington in terms of being exposed to the ideas of non-Western powers like India, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, countries that are uh, uh, clearly uh, have a, somehow different views about how to respond to the situation in Ukraine. Uh, these countries prefer dialogue, prefer negotiations, uh, prefer different sorts of trajectory. Um, uh, and I think that's that's something that I started to see in DC recently in terms of the expectation they have from allies and partners outside of Europe. Let's bring in the elephant in the room. Now we have not discussed China till now, like what China means for the region and given the discussion we had till now. Now, yes, in the ITU2, you can see India and uh, U.S. having a major common interest against China, perhaps they would think that one of the ways of engaging with the region and uh, 
balancing China's influence in the region is to go through I2U2 and other possible uh, frameworks in the future. But I do also see from the other side that Saudi and Israel and other countries don't want to get into this great power competition. They are like they want to be just good friends with everyone and they don't want to jeopardize their vision, their own regional prosperity, ambition. So now you have discussed about messy situation regarding Ukraine. Uh, how does this mess work out when it comes to China? Bigger mess when it comes to China. Um, China is a major player. It's an economic player. It's a focal player. Uh, countries uh, have strong trade relationships with uh, uh, China across the board. From Latin America to Africa to West Asia to Asian countries, everyone, including the United States. That's a fact. That's a, uh, the fundamental foundation here. Uh, however, uh, the focal situation in Asia is uh, uh, very tricky, and countries are not blind to that. Uh, if Ukraine created that mess in terms of food security, energy security, financial meltdown, and a lot of countries are still trying to cope with the aftershock of the Ukraine war, specifically in the emerging markets, to think about how, how the situation, how the global map will be when you have a situation in Taiwan that's not really that might be a bit difficult and different than the situation in Ukraine. And then you're gonna have two major global conflicts taking place in the same place, in the same time. Uh, 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 you might try to dismiss great power competition, but great power competition will come home, knock on your door. That's the reality of things. Uh, uh, countries have the absolute moral right to think about their own people, their own national interests, absolutely. Uh, however, they shouldn't be naive about that global landscape. Uh, when there is a war, there is a war. Wars uh, change and alter global calculus, no matter what. I, I cannot really look into the future and tell you how this, uh, how the Ukraine situation, I'm sorry, how the Taiwan situation will alter the geopolitical relations between these countries and China. But differently, I'm going to tell you that differently is not going to be the same. Uh, right, it's going to be different sort of costs, different sort of trade-offs. Uh, uh, think about it. When you have a situation in Taiwan, let's start with what's the position of India. That's important. Uh, the position of India will be very decisive in terms of energy supply lines, food security, and then what's the what's the position of other Asian powers who also big importers and big trade partners to the Gulf states. I mean, I think the 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 the, uh, the bilateral relationship across the Indo-Pacific are much more complicated, as, and also not really China-centric still. I mean, we have uh, uh, the Gulf has very strong relationship with many of the Asian countries, so their calculus is not just China uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, 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 Taiwan situation. They have good relationship with Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia, India. I mean. So their calculus would be a bit tricky uh, uh, in case of a Taiwan contingency in the future. Just to follow it up, at the moment, which way is the balance tilted? Like uh, region balancing relationship against China or more like uh, diversifying its dependence on US? Like which way is the balance tilted at the moment? I always get that question, always. Every time in every capital that I visit, uh, outside of the Gulf, uh, 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 scholars, thinkers, policymakers always ask me that question. How should we think about China and the Middle East? I think my 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 two cents are very clear. 
no one in the Gulf or in the Middle East is choosing China over the United States or choosing the United States over China. That's not really the equation that exists. The equation is very clear. China is a major player. We have already good economic and trade relationship. So having good relationship with China makes a lot of sense. And they only evaluated based on their own national interest. That's it. Uh, uh, I think that problem is China became the elephant in the room, like you said. So there's a tendency to look into every single bilateral relationship from the length of great power competition between the United States and China. And I think that might be, I think, the wrong length to use while assessing some of the relationships that the Gulf Israel uh, uh, have with China. So there's a country which I'd like to specifically discuss a bit before we get on, I would say, digital technologies and global governance. Um, this country fascinates me because uh, uh, I think its relationship with a country called Greece is actually very interesting. And I am referring to Turkey. So um, what has recently happened is that um, Turkey is kind of trying to reassess its situation in West Asia. Um, we all have been aware of their uh, positions on Israel, the Saudis, the relationship between the Saudis and the U.S. Obviously, Turkey is uh, a part of NATO. So, yes, they also have a kind of a relationship with the U.S. very deeply and with Europe. But uh, considering that the India-Turkey relationship has been quite, I would say, skewed, and it has its own value and it has its own, you know, I would say purpose. Um, how do we, uh, how, how, how should these Abraham Accord countries, which have become a part with Israel, should look? Because I think that uh, we all understand that Saudi Arabia kind of endorses the accords indirectly, because obviously in, in a political sense, it is being conceived by thinkers that uh, the Abraham Accords may lead some time, maybe in decades or something like, to create a, an EU-like situation wherein uh, things are way better in the region. And uh, Turkey is an, an interesting actor there. So uh, Turkey's dynamics, uh, I think um, I had this interview long back, months before, I think maybe a year ago, uh, with uh, Dr. Al White, who's actually also in this area. And... Um, even he remarked the same that Turkey's positions are becoming increasingly different. So how do you look at Turkey's dynamics per se? Because I think that fascinates, fascinates a lot. Yeah. Uh, Turkey is a powerful player uh, by the virtue of its own geography, demographics, uh, uh, positioning, their uh, economy. Uh, so they're a country on the rise and they're a country that uh, has uh, influence uh, uh, and the ability to alter the geopolitical landscape in multiple theaters at the same time. They are active in Libya, in North Africa. They are active in Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. They are active in the Balkan. They are active in the Black Sea. They are active in Syria, in Iraq. Uh, 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 I mean, they are basically uh, uh, in many strategic leaders, and this is very impressive for a country with its own size and demographics. Uh, and part of the fact that Turkey is a restless power, that Turkey is still trying to find its own strategic space, uh, uh, its own geography, the countries are surrounding uh, uh, Turkey from Syria, Iraq, Arabs, Iran, and then you have Armenia, you have Russia, 
and then you have the uh, European countries, I think Bulgaria and Greece, the Greek islands. I think they're a country that's still trying to figure out what their own geostrategic space. And that leading uh, Turkey to be uh, uh, restless, that's the term that I, uh, I like to use, uh, when it comes to the geopolitical landscape, right? Uh, uh, being in Libya, being in Syria, being in Iraq, being directly involved in the Gondor Karabakh. Um, and I don't think that this this will change uh, because I don't think that geopolitical realities around Turkey will change uh, in terms of uh, the statehoods, the countries, the nations. Uh, I think what I expect is going to happen after uh, the Ukraine war is you have Russia is going to be on retreat because it's very consumed in terms of resources, demographics, military power in Ukraine for the next 10 to 15 years. And that will impact the Russian ability to uh, maintain its own uh, leading position in Central Asia, well, what we call the Turkish nations. Uh, and we have been seeing that uh, in terms of the inability of Russia to alter the situation between Azerbaijan or Armenia or stabilizing the situation between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So it reflects it reflect, uh, a Russian weakness. I think more likely Turkey will be able and much more positioned to fill that sort of a space uh, in what we call post-Soviet space in Central Asia. I think this is where I see Turkey is more on the rise. Uh, uh, in terms of how countries are reacting to Turkey, they're trying to deconflict. The, 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 the Middle East in the last 10 years uh, was very uh, complex landscape of uh, multi-layered uh, competitions and, and conflicts between regional powers in a way that at some point you were not really sure what countries are are fighting for. So what you have been seeing in the last two years, some sort of tactical de-escalation, tactical deconflection uh, between Ankara and some of the uh, Arab powers, uh, either uh, Turkey, the UE, uh, they now uh, uh, they reset the relationship. Same thing applies uh, to Turkey and Saudi Arabia. The Egypt-Turkey question is still tricky because they still uh, have opposing uh, views and, and positions on the East Med. Uh, um, I think this is the only uh, uh, the only theater where I think that might be might be uh, uh, we might have some sort of escalation in the future, but it's still uh, less likely. It's still less likely, but it is if there is some sort of uh, escalation, it's going to be in the in the in the in this area. Just a brief follow-up: How much of the Turkey equation is subject to Erdogan, or will it overlast Erdogan? Like, because we are looking at the report saying that maybe perhaps there is a chance of a leadership change. I mean, we don't know if that is for sure, but like, how much of it is like uh, leadership neutral, basically? I'm a geopolitical thinker. I'm a strategist, so I, I I I like to believe that everything is about geopolitics rather than individual figures. Uh, uh, meaning, uh, do we expect change in uh, Israel relationships with uh, India or the UE or the ITU to participation? Because you have a transition of power between Yair Lapid to uh, from Yair Lapid to uh, Netanyahu. I don't think so, uh, and I think the same the same model somehow applies to Turkey. Uh, the tone will change. If there is some sort of political change in Ankara, I think the tone might change. I think the messaging might change. Uh, hard for me to see that the, uh, the uh, hard for me to see a change in the political calculus in Ankara. That's that's a bit difficult for me to to expect. 
So um, let's get to the concluding part of this discussion. And I'd like to discuss about technologies and why is it so we are seeing that uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, Israel and others are trying to create their own strategic space when it comes to emerging technologies. Now, we can take a soft and hard power context and say, okay, fine, there are defense technologies and then there are digital technologies. And uh, while we can discuss about, you know, how entrepreneurs are flourishing in West Asia, you know, they're partnering with us. We also have our startup people who actually have their own uh, offices in Singapore and I would say even Dubai, maybe even in Sharjah, I don't know. But uh, there's a new group think which is emerging in West Asia for good. Wherein, uh, so what happens was happened was that uh, in these three years, when the pandemic was at its rampant level, um, the technological groupthink, which was very much, I would say, uh, uh, I would say American, Scandinavian, European, British, French, it kind of more globalized. We also have Indian perspectives. We also have more Singaporean perspectives. It's not that they were not there, but uh, we have also seen much more. I would say not just strategic positions, but even strategic approaches in like countries are literally interested to do something. Um, we, uh, Neom is one of the projects of Saudi Arabia in infrastructure and even in sustainability. But again, let us see how that grows. Uh, it's a very uh, inspiring project. Let's see. But overall, I can't exactly remember the name of a very interesting forum, but the Saudis uh, launched a multilateral forum, a kind of a grouping by some organization. I can't remember the name exactly, unfortunately. But my point is, uh, West Asian countries you in space tech, digital tech, uh, they're trying to uh, reinvent certain understandings of digital technologies, their ethics, their value when it comes to the economics of human life. Uh, so um, how do you see it like when it comes to... Because I think um, even with India, this could become very sustainable and uh, it could chart new paths of cooperation. So, yeah. This is an excellent question. As someone who's trained engineer and my first job after graduation from college was an engineer uh, working for a big tech company, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the intersection of technology and national security and grant strategy. And in my capacity as the director of the tech program at the Mace Institute, this is uh, the, the tech, uh, uh, the digital collaboration slash uh, technology as a strategic theater is my 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 biggest my biggest focus uh i was invited to speak at the global Cybersecurity forum in riyadh back in november and it was fascinating to me to see a lot of indian cybersecurity slash tech professionals there in riyadh including uh the indian uh, cyber czar who was also there in riyadh at the time and i think india and saudi arabia are are about to sign an MIU or they already signed an MIU on cyber cooperation. So cyber started to be a very, uh, like a cornerstone to many of these bilateral relationships. And the reason is, the reason for that is countries, especially in West Asia, think about, about technology as a strategic space, as a sovereign space, as uh, an indispensable element to sovereignty, state sovereignty and statehood and uh, foreign policy. So countries want to be much more resilient uh, 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 on the tech front. I think uh, thanks to the Trump administration campaign against Chinese 5G um, uh, and Huawei, I think countries are thinking about uh, technology differently. They're thinking about it as 
it's not really a luxury. It's not really a bunch of uh, IT specialists uh, sitting somewhere uh, trying to handle uh, uh, network and and uh, uh, do some sort of maintenance to a bunch of computers. I think they're thinking about it differently. Um, and is this this sort of trend is going to emerge? Is emerging already, and uh, you are seeing a lot of countries are making tech and cyber a cornerstone to their own bilateral relationship. For instance, uh, 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 one of the major uh, 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 areas of cooperation between the UE and Israel is cyber and tech, uh, drones design and manufacturing. Uh, you're speaking about cyber defenses. Uh, capacity building for uh, Emirati uh, professionals, uh, uh, discussing electrical vehicles, uh, trying to co-invest, they're actually co-investing in India in the semiconductor industry, still private sector. It's Israeli and Emirati uh, 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 venture capitalists who are investing in the semiconductor industry in India. But it gives you an idea that that sort of strategic space is becoming a much more like a cornerstone to uh, many of these strategic alignments in the region. And part of it, another part of it in my viewpoint is they're trying to build a third way between China and the United States. Again, back to the original point, no one is choosing the United States over China and no one is, wants to choose China over the United States. People want to prioritize their own national interests and their own national security. And by to pursue your national security, you need to have your own technological slash cyber capabilities in this new era of global chaos. Um, uh, and I think India is seen as a, a, a cyber slash tech power. Part of it is that the Indian tech talent is very uh, 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 is very competitive, and countries recognize that. Countries also recognize the robustness of uh, tech Indian tech companies and cyber companies, and also people uh, appreciate. Uh, uh, the Indian norms when it comes to tech and cyber. So this is where I see India also able to leverage its own tech and cyber status uh, uh, to build or increase or develop or improve its own relationship with many of these uh, powers in the region as well. Just to follow it up on that, like given the fact that uh, uh, West Asia intends to diversify its own economic dependence on oil and energy, and uh, use this emerging technologies as a way to diversify its future economic path. Not that the traditional energy will become irrelevant, but it will perhaps as a share of total energy consumption reduce gradually. And I get West Asia is also trying to use technology as a way to diversify that. Now, as you have said, Indian tech manpower and Indian uh, tech capabilities are a way to kind of perhaps do that. So how does it work in the future institutionally? When I say institutionally, I mean, is there, I mean, I always see in the report saying that there is a free trade agreement between uh, work on the works between GCC and India, but is it actually in that advanced level? Like, do you see any kind of a institutional agreement happening between India and the region where both can work more deeply institutionally, not like a issue by issue, sector by sector thing? but at a larger, broader level where technology plays a, plays a key role. And in fact, manpower exchange, like Indian expats are already a big working community in the Gulf. Perhaps this will take it to even much advanced level where white collar share in the white collar workers will increase. So where do you see? We have also seen like to accommodate expats, uh, the region is kind of uh, mellowing down on its traditional conservative values. 
uh, on perhaps alcohol consumption or perhaps like the role of gender in the way the domestic economists work. We have seen Saudi prince leading the way in Saudi Arabia or UAE being more accommodative. I don't say liberal in the Western sense. I would use the word accommodative where like gradually according to the pace of their own societies, they are becoming more and more engaging with all these values. So the external workforce expats also kind of gel in with the vision of the West Asia. So the institutional framework, I want to seek your comments on. Globally, we don't have an institutional framework for uh, for tech cooperation. I don't think so. Uh, I think what you are seeing is there is a proliferation of data agreements between tech powers. So we have the US, EU, Tech Council, and then you have the data, the cross-border data transfer. And then you have the EU, India, Tech Council, uh, 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 India and the United States are working on one. Um, so that sort of many lateral uh, tech alignment always starts with you have to have an agreement on cross-border data transfer. That's it. But we don't really have something on the global level that actually uh, uh, able of formalizing cross-border data transfer. It's still subject to local uh, companies, lo uh, uh, regional players, uh, uh, also to geopolitical tensions. And I'll be frank with you, when, when you think about it, it's very hard to have to think about a global, uh, a, a global platform that's able to address that right now, since we really have uh, different versions of the internet exist uh, in the same in the same geographical space. Uh, I think what you might see is much a fragmented or a fragmented version of the internet that emerge that include countries like India, uh, countries of the EU, United States, and you can add to that Israel and Arab Gulf states. And this is because of the commercial interest uh, 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 on cross-border data transfer. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia launched an organization called Digital Cooperation Organization, DCO. I think one of the objectives that the Saudi Arabia is trying to work on is they're trying to present their own agenda on, 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 uh, on data. And they are also trying to advocate for cross-border data transfer on a universal level. And I think the fact that Saudi Arabia is thinking about data and literally launching an organization to think about cross-border data transfer is also tells you where Saudi Arabia is and where they want to be um, uh, in the long term. Like, do you see any such any kind of trade agreement happening where things on different sectors can be at more easy level without all these specific agreements? Um, I know that the UE and and the United States just signed uh, a date cross border data transfer agreement last year. I think either October or November, and I think this is like the first time we hear about a Gulf nation having a data framework with the United States, and I think that that agreement between the UE and the and the US will be replicated uh, with other with other Gulf countries. And I think this is a very, very positive. It was long overdue to have that sort of agreement. So as we are at the conclusion of this talk, um, I would say that it was a pleasure to host you. And I think we covered so many interesting areas on when it, you know, from West Asia to technology governance. And I think maybe in future also, if anything turns up, which would be intriguing to discuss, I think we'd be happy to have you. No, thanks so much. Really appreciated the, the back and forth, the conversation, really appreciate the work you do. It's always a pleasure to engage with uh, intellectuals from, from India. And again, really appreciate it. I really appreciate that you are talking to me while it's, uh, while it's nighttime in, in India. So please, uh, I'm sending my regards to uh, your Indian followers, and I hope I can be on the podcast in the future. Sure.
um, it was a pleasure to have and surely I think we'll be next time. Thanks. Thank you.